March 6, 2019, Seattle, Washington, 600 University Street, 7th floor, courtroom 2. Good morning, Your Honor. Uh, my name is Jim Lobsens. I did recently, about three weeks ago, I was retained by Mr. Slezna's other lawyers to represent him at oral argument here, and uh, I represent Mr. Slezna. Thanks, Mr. Lobsens. It's nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Lobsons, standing at the podium before two judges, representing the defendant appellant, Roman Valerievich Selesnev, a Russian national, then 34 years old. Just behind Lobsons, Michael Morgan, representing the United States of America, the body that sent Selesnev to prison. As to the sentencing issue, it's my position that there was both a procedural error and, a, and the sentence is also substantively unreasonable. The two are very intertwined. It's hard to tease them apart. Uh, but the procedural error is really failure to consider and failure to explain the uh, very lengthy sentence imposed on Mr. Seleznev. Two years earlier, Roman Seleznev had been convicted for computer crimes and received a jail sentence that would make any hacker shake in their boots. Was it really necessary to get a 27-year sentence to protect the public from Mr. Seleznev and future crimes? A sentence that make any criminal quiver. Um, and in this case, Mr. Seleznev has received a sentence which is longer than you can get if you have no prior criminal convictions for first-degree premeditated murder in state court in Washington. So, here's the question. Did he deserve it? It's trickier than it might seem at first. On one hand, it's hard to imagine any non-violent computer crime worth 27 years in prison. But then, what is an appropriate sentence for such a man as Seleznev was? Five minutes into his lawyer's argument, one of the judges interrupts. Could I interject a question? Yes. What was the guidelines range? Life. Uh, life. Uh, but because it's treated it sort of maxed out at a level 43, but it's life. Okay, so if if the maximum was life and the court gave 27 years, yes. and you think it's not substantively reasonable? I do not. What, it's not, right? I but do not. What I, would have been substantively reasonable? What's the most you think the district court should have sentenced him to? The attorney is clearly rattled. He averts his gaze, thinking into the air, the way you used to do in class when your teacher asked you a question you didn't know the answer to. I'm trying to think. If I had been the district court judge, what is the most that I could say, I can justify this? The lawyer shakes his head and puts his hands out, trying to come up with a number off the top of his head. Considering that he's Seleznev's defense, the one he ultimately lands on is a bit surprising. Fifteen years? I don't know. He's 32 years old and I haven't yet addressed the fact that he doesn't have all of his brain because half his skull was blown off and because he's got a serious traumatic brain injury.
Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. The kind of numbers thrown around that appeals court begs the question, what kind of punishment is fitting for a cyber criminal? Can any digital wrongdoing warrant nearly 30 years in jail? Roman Selesnev, the 33-year-old slightly pudgy Russian with a beard and a receding dark hair, realized the situation he was in in the days before he was set to be handed that sentence. So he penned an 11-page apology letter to try and elicit some sympathy from his judge. To get a sense of his story, we're reading from it now, with some slight edits to smooth over the broken English. Quote, I was born in the city of Vladivostok, Russia, July 23, 1984. I was just two years old and my parents got divorced. My mother and I lived in a room that was approximately 10 square meters. We lived with four other families during those very difficult times. Most of the time I was home alone while my mom worked hard. I taught myself about computer technologies. I had great skill at a young age and it was clear that I could do great things with my life. So I studied hard in school to try someday to help my mom. End quote. Roman was building up to a degree in mathematics and computer science when the defining event of his childhood struck. Quote, I came home from school and I found my mother in our bathtub drowned. She died of this because of alcohol poisoning. I panicked and cried so badly from this pain and loss of my mom. The next day, my mom's brother came to our apartment and took all my mom's jewelry and some of her good clothing and told me I must leave the apartment. End quote. Roman quit school without money to fall back on. He was unemployed until he found a job at a computer store. It paid just $5 a day, so he left. And this becomes the foolish point where my life fell down to the side of criminal activity he wrote. I started to become a hacker. He started by stealing small amounts of cards here and there and selling them on the dark web. It was enough to cover the bills. A breakthrough came in 2007 when he came upon a larger database of credit cards and sold them off for a lot more money. Soon, quote, I was becoming greedy and out of control, end quote. At this point in the story, he claims, came the turning point in his cybercriminal career. He recounts an event in 2009 when his wife and daughter were on vacation and thieves broke into his house, stole his money and equipment and, quote-unquote, tortured him all night. Quote, at this time, I wanted out of this life and planned to stop these crimes to do honest and respectable things with my skill as my mom wanted for me. And I made it clear to all, I am done. I am out. I made a clear announcement on the internet that I quit selling credit cards. I attempted to protect my family and find an honest career. End quote. 
A screenshot of his notice to the cybercrime underworld has survived to this day. So we'll quote now from cardingworld.cc, June 21st, 2009, the moment Roman began his life of doing honest and respectable things. Quote, Hello, my dear customers. Sales will be until 20 July 2009. Don't lose your chance. After that, we'll end our work forever. Minimum order? $1,000. All clients will get a free checker on the amounts of dumps you buy. American Express, $1 per card. Visa, MasterCard, Discover, $5 per card. End quote. Clearly, this was an honest family man who felt deep remorse about his cybercrimes. As Norman Barbarossa and Harold Chun, two attorneys involved in the Selesnev case, explained in a 2017 Black Hat presentation, Roman started hacking not in 2007, as he claimed, but five years earlier, in 2002, still just a teenager. Back then, he was stealing a wealth of personal information from innocent people. Names, dates of birth, social security numbers, known in the forums as fools, for the purpose of identity fraud. By 2005, he'd develop a speciality in credit cards. He was known to the underground as Ancox, a transliteration for the Russian word for psycho, a name he earned for being a hothead. You can only imagine what it takes to be labeled a hothead in a community of cybercriminals. In the years that followed, according to Seattle District Court Judge Richard A. Jones, Encox had become, quote, one of the world's leading providers of stolen credit card data and was revered in the carding underworld and admired by thousands of other criminals, end quote. Meanwhile, as he started to build a significant profile on carding forms, the U.S. Secret Service was building up a case. The agency had it on good evidence that the individual known as Ancox was, in fact, Roman Selesnev of Vladivostok. In a move that certainly wouldn't happen today, U.S. authorities took their evidence to the FSB, Russia's successor agency to the KGB. On May 19, 2009, members of the Secret Service and the FBI met with their Russian counterparts in Moscow and presented a theory tying Roman Selesnev to years of identity and credit card theft. The down-on-his-luck Carter was now clearly within the sights of two major world powers. Yet, remarkably, he was the one with the trump card. They're coming for it. Your personal data, your intellectual property, your business. Cyber attackers are working to take what belongs to you and holding you to ransom. Defenders don't fear ransomware. They end it. With CyberReason, defenders detect and stop ransomware that even others miss every time. This is not just a product. It's a mission. CyberReason gives you the upper hand against ransomware and all other cyber attacks. At CyberReason, 
We don't fear ransomware. We end it. Learn more at cyberreason.com slash ransom. And Cox's fire sale wasn't a sales tactic. Within weeks, after years as one of the most prominent names in the dark web, he disappeared from the web without a trace, removing all posts and deleting all accounts that could tie back to his identity. It wasn't enough to clear any case against him, of course, but it certainly helped complicate it. And equally, it was a signal to the authorities who'd been after him all those years. You see, there's one very important fact about Roman that he didn't emphasize in his sob story. As often as he writes of his alcoholic dead mother, he leaves out that his father was not only very much alive, he was, is still today, an entrepreneur and a prominent politician as a member of the Russian state Duma, their parliament. After the meeting in Moscow, word of his case clearly got back to Mr. Selesnev, Jones would later note. Roman had contacts inside the FSB through his powerful father. In online messages a year later, he bragged to an associate about how the computer crime squad within the FSB, the very agency tasked supposedly with bringing people like him to justice, in fact was protecting him, enabling him to carry out his wanton cybercrime. The FSB's betrayal not only derailed their plan, Barbarossa explained, but it also caused the Americans to, quote, rethink how they would go about seeking international cooperation on the case, end quote. This change in attitude will have major ramifications later on. But for now, it was up to Roman what to do next, now that the era of Ancox was behind him. In his sympathy letter, he wrote of the precarious position he was in. With his grandmother dying, the pressures of supporting his family without carding, and the difficulty of finding gainful employment with his lack of education. All of it was lies, of course, as he was hardly done retiring as Ancox by the time he was building up two new online personas, Balba and Track 2, that would be even bigger and better than anything he'd done before. As Ancox, Roman would distribute stolen personal data and credit cards manually to each criminal that wanted to use them. Now he was taking his business to the next level with a fully automated website. It functioned like an Amazon.com for carders, Jones wrote, allowing buyers to automatically search, select and purchase credit card data by choosing criteria such as financial institution or card brand." End quote. Unlike Ancox, who'd taken seven years to reach the pinnacle of the carding world, Bulba and Track 2, quote, achieved instant success and were perhaps the leading source of stolen credit card data during the period they operated, end quote. Track 2, for one, became the exclusive provider for Carter.su, one of the world's leading carding forms, servicing over 25,000 members. 25,000 customers seems like a lot to handle for just one man, but his supply could support it. Often, when we talk about dark web dumps, we're talking about a single kind of event, 
A hacker steals a database worth of passwords, credit card numbers, what have you, then plops it on a web page. Roman, with help from criminals working for him, would do that. At the Broadway Grill in Seattle, Washington, for example, they made off with a database of 32,000 credit cards from customers that visited the restaurant between December 1, 2009 and October 22, 2010. But that wasn't all. Instead of merely running away with tens of thousands of cards, Roman planted info-stealers to capture the live data transmitted to the database from point-of-sale machines. So picture a waiter at the Broadway Grill. When they swipe a new customer's credit card into their computer, the data is transmitted to the company's central server. But on its way, it has to pass through the malware. The malware records the information and, every five minutes, compiles that card data along with every other card swiped in that time frame, sending it all to Roman's remote servers. Maintaining a foothold even after stealing untold thousands of cards gave Roman a constant, steady stream of new supply, and the volume of businesses he stole from was staggering. In Washington alone? just one of the 50 states, he claimed seven businesses at least. Around the country, hundreds more. Every five minutes, each one of these companies would feed fresh card numbers to Roman Seleznev's servers in Russia, Ukraine and Virginia. So you can begin to see how one man alone could support a large swath of the Eastern Hemisphere's carding community. As just one example, there was a day in April 2011 when Track 2 released 1 million new stolen credit cards for sale. These are the kinds of numbers we're dealing with here. They're the kind of numbers that tend to attract attention. And once again, US authorities were closing in. Roman had made the mistake of using the same email address to register his popular Track 2 website and open a PayPal account. Authorities obtained a legal order to access the relevant account information, which, among other things, included his personal address. Authorities went one by one, connecting every new bit of personal information to another. An address and an email, a phone number, a fake name, Roman Ivanov, Ruben Samlevich, reaching further and further back and deeper and deeper into Roman's past. They went so far that they could see his purchase histories, like an order for flowers for his wife and plane tickets to Bali, which included his passport information. Together, the information tied track to not just to Roman, but also Ancox. The United States of America indicted Roman Seleznev on March 3, 2011, on 29 felony counts. But as authorities closed in on him for the second time, yet again their plan was thrown off course. From the case docket, you can see exactly when everything turned upside down. Throughout March and April 2011, over a dozen motions and orders progressed the case against Seleznev. Authorities were moving fast. Two sealed orders were filed on April 27th, and then, suddenly, nothing. 
For the entire rest of the year, the prosecution appears to have completely abandoned the case. That's because on the morning of 28th of April, a 25-year-old shoe salesman named Adil El-Atmani walked in the Argana in Marrakesh, a three-story touristy cafe at the Jamaa El-Fna Square in the center of the city. The man had with him a backpack containing two pressure cooker bombs, which he detonated at 11.50 a.m. local time, killing 17 people and injuring another 25. Quote, My wife and I wanted to have breakfast at the hotel, so we went into the restaurant, but they told me they cannot serve me food. I asked them why, and they say I need to put on a suit. I had no suit to put on, so we took a walk to the closest local cafe. The waiter said we must wait 30 minutes before he can start preparing breakfast for us, so I say we'll wait. Then the waiter brought us juice, and the suicide bomber blew himself up. The entire cafe blew up, with blood and dead people everywhere. End quote. Seleznev was rushed onto an emergency flight to Moscow, where he'd receive high-risk corneal surgery. A part of his skull was blown off, and he went into a month-long coma. Quote, In the middle of 2012, my wife and I got divorced. My wife told me that the reason she left me that day in the hospital, she didn't want to take care of a vegetable. She fled from Russia to the United States, taking our daughter and all of our money. She left all the divorce details with an attorney, and she left. My life was terrible, and I hated the man I saw when I looked into the mirror. I asked God why he saved me. Why? End quote. Even after all he's done, it'd be hard not to feel any sympathy for Roman at this point in the story. If what he was saying was true. No traumatic, life-threatening head injury or even a coma could have kept Roman Seleznev from the dark web. In 2013, he reinvented himself as Tupac and evolved his business yet again, now not just selling his own cards, but also acting as a medium for some of the other biggest credit card hackers in the world, offering their wares in exchange for a cut of the profits. He advertised, quote-unquote, the best sellers in one place at Tupac.cc, with dumps from such American corporations as Neiman Marcus and Target. To spur even more business, Roman created a sister site for Tupac.cc called POS Dumps. POS Dumps provided a step-by-step -step guide for novices in how to monetize stolen credit cards with tips for determining a victim's zip code and available balance. Students were provided free software for writing stolen information onto blank cards, and at the completion of the course, they were directed to the marketplace to begin buying. Over 3,300 aspiring cybercriminals visited POS dumps in only its first month after launch. So if his wife really had stolen all his money, his life was terrible and he hated himself, it certainly didn't show in Roman's behavior. 
Besides getting back in the game, he bought two properties in Bali, Indonesia, where he flew back and forth too often when he wasn't vacationing in tropical islands. Photographs taken from this time show Roman with his shirt off on beautiful sandy beaches at five-star resorts, posing with a yellow Dodge Challenger, or sometimes just piles of cash, smiling with his arms raised in the air with joy. Because Roman collected his payments in difficult-to-trace currency systems like Bitcoin, we don't have an exact measure of how much money he was making in his cybercriminal career. But we can get a sense from just one of his accounts with a service called Liberty Reserve, which was later seized by government authorities. Through this one company, not including any other payment methods or accounts he was using at the same time, he'd earned approximately $17 million. You start to do the math and realize that no number of tropical vacations was ever going to make a meaningful dent in Roman's credit card empire. At the turn of July 2014, Roman bragged to a friend about a particularly lavish trip he was taking in the Maldives, a sliver of pretty tiny islands in the Indian Ocean. I took the most expensive villa, he wrote in a chat referring to his $20,000 villa at the Atmosphere Kanifushi, one of those resorts you only ever see on Instagram. He added, I have my own manservant. Hours from the time of that chat, Norman Barbarossa of the U.S. Attorney's Office received a call while on the road. Quote, I didn't really know what was going on, but I got a call as I'm coming into work on July 1st, and it's an attorney in D.C., and he says to me, as I'm illegally talking on my cell phone in my car, hey, we found Roman Selesnev, he's in the Maldives. And I'm like, where the hell is the Maldives, and who is Roman Selesnev? He says, you've got to get on this call right now. We've got like 20 people from the State Department, we've got people from the DOJ, Secret Service, the embassies in Moscow and Sri Lanka. Get on the call. Get on the call. End quote. Extraditions require many steps. You need to apply for and receive relevant clearance for an operation and coordinate with the country in question and mobilize agents to perform the mission and coordinate with local authorities in the host country, to say nothing about arranging transportation for all the agents in both countries and the targets themselves. Between all that and more, extraditions typically take anywhere from half a year to three years. Roman was scheduled to fly back home from the Maldives in four days. The Secret Service had agents in the Maldives on July 3rd, within two days of receiving first notice, despite the 18-hour flight from America. Roman took a jet from his island to the Velana International Airport, where agents presented him with an arrest warrant and took him into custody. Upon being presented with his arrest warrant, Roman noted to the Secret Service that America had no extradition treaty with the country he was in. He wasn't dumb, after all. He only ever took lavish vacations in countries without extradition treaties with the US. He'd also purchased all his plane tickets last minute, part of the reason why the Secret Service received such short notice this time around 
and took other similar precautions to protect himself, like monitoring legal records on Pacer for any mention of his name or aliases. In fact, the US had technically conducted an expulsion, agreed to with the Maldivian government in the days prior. And so Roman Selesnev boarded an all-expenses-paid flight to the land of the free. Based on the 29 counts against him, Roman faced up to 35 years in federal prison. The final number might have turned out to be a small fraction of that had he not done everything possible to ruin his case. Like when he first met with prosecutors in December of 2014 as they tried to get information from him about other criminals in his circle. Records later reflected how Roman obstinately refused to cooperate. Quote, Defendant was combative and repeatedly refused to identify others he had conspired with or those he knew were involved in criminal behavior. When asked why he would not name others or provide information regarding others involved in cybercrime, defendant explained that he was withholding that information as bargaining chips. End quote. After a couple of years, clearly, the gamble hadn't paid off, and Roman changed his tune. The government agreed to meet with him on March 28th and 29th, 2017. Quote, Unfortunately, he did not have any particularly useful information. Defendant acknowledged his guilt and that of his co-conspirators on the carding forums. He also identified some of those he conspired with between approximately 2005 and his capture in 2014. Much of the information that he provided, however, was already well known to the Secret Service. End quote. In case it wasn't enough that Roman had waited two years to give only useless information, federal agents added one more note. Quote, Furthermore, Selesnev made statements that the government believes to be demonstrably false, thereby further undermining the value of any information he provided. End quote. In monitored phone conversations after his arrest, Roman spoke often with his father, Valerie, the politician. Sometimes they spoke in code, but early on, their open disregard for the legal system was comical. At one point, for example, they plotted how they could influence the prosecution. We can just pay them all in advance, and that's it, Valerie told his son. It's what I'm saying. Offer them this, Roman replied. Valerie was enthusiastic. Yes, he seconded. I'm leaning towards this. I think it's an option. Roman added one more thing. Just make sure they know the money they'll get is as much as they make in a whole year. Together, the elder and younger Selesnevs plotted different strategies, like breaking contact with his lawyers to delay the trial or feigning sickness. They burned through lawyer after lawyer, after each one in turn recommended taking a plea deal. They came up with theories that he was set up, either by a super hacker who managed to plant all the damning fake evidence on his computer, or by the corrupt US government itself. Valerie referred to various men he knew who could help in this situation, referring to the so-called Uncle Andre option, and magicians and doctors who could, quote, create a miracle called the patient got into the hospital in a wrong way, so he needs to be released from the hospital, end quote. 
Their most ambitious plan seemed to involve arranging an outside medical visit for Roman's still serious brain condition. Even years after the Morocco attack, he still experienced seizures and other complications. Under that pretext, they could plot the escape. Even after the conversations led to heightened security, his father was unfazed. Quote, what can we discuss? Your escape plan or what? End quote. For prosecutors, it was a slam-dunk case. They put his sentencing recommendation in stark terms, stating that, quote, simply put, Roman Selesnev has harmed more victims and caused more financial loss than perhaps any other defendant that has appeared before the court. This prosecution is unprecedented, end quote. Indeed, one estimate from investigators places the number of businesses Roman breached at 3,400. That number includes such names as Boeing, Chase, Capital One, and Citibank. But the real victims were the millions of individuals, at least 2.9 million by prosecutors' estimates, whose cards were stolen and used by cybercriminals for identity theft and financial crimes. The 3,700 banks and credit unions that supplied those cards estimated the total financial fraud to be around $170 million. Prosecutors made special note that, quote, in addition to the known losses, there are undoubtedly many more stolen card numbers the government did not identify and additional fraud on the known cards that was not detected by cardholders or the financial institutions, end quote. And then there were the smaller businesses that couldn't as easily take the punch. The pizza chains, the retail stores, the Houston Zoo, which lost $266,000, it was planning for new enhancements for the staff and animal welfare. At trial, one Washington state business owner recounted the quote-unquote horrendous effect Roman's attack had on his business and the nervous breakdown he had as a result. Another said that even six years after the fact, he was still working on paying down the debt accrued from his attack. And Broadway Grill, the one we mentioned earlier? Its owner was forced to, quote, walk away from the business, shutter the doors, file personal bankruptcy. It was pretty devastating, end quote. Roman expressed sympathy for his victims in his letter, though it's difficult to tell if any of it was genuine. I want to cry for them, he wrote. Some of them lost their businesses because of me. He went on to mention the degrees he was pursuing from prison and how he was now taking Bible study courses. Is a three-decade sentence fitting for a man who so obviously lies, cheats and steals at every opportunity to advance himself with no honest expression of remorse and no indication that he'd ever quit cybercrime, even after being caught or in the face of life-altering events and injuries? Roman's last lawyer recognized his client's situation, but argued to Brian Krebs that, quote, it's also a draconian sentence for a person who is very gravely ill. He's not going to live that long. He's going to die in jail. I'm certain of that. End quote. That may end up being true. And depending on how you look at it, it may also be warranted. Towards the end of his sympathy letter, Roman finally acknowledged what was coming to him. Quote, 
I made poor choices in my lifetime, and I accept responsibility for those choices. I am not perfect and did wrong. There's nobody or nothing I can blame except me. I did this, and now I will answer for my crimes as a man." End quote. After all the lies, that may be the truest thing he's ever said. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. As some of you may have noticed, we had a few glitches with the feed and the website of the podcast. Right now, everything should be in order, but many thanks to the listeners who reached out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn to report the issue. Very much appreciated. Also, shout-outs to Yuri Wexler, to Juan Pablo Bartolomeo, the X-Files maniac from Buenos Aires, to Jonathan Eddy, the information security aficionado, Mr. Fresh, the man, the legend, the spacecraft systems engineer, and lastly to Derek Oswald, a Canadian living in Switzerland. Thank you all very, very much. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written by Nate Nelson. I did the editing and sound design with help from our intern, Healy Turner. This week, we're saying goodbye to Sarit Kurtzman, who handled our social media. Thank you, Sarit, for a wonderful time working together, and I wish you the very best of luck in the future. Our website, assuming it works, is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife or me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. CK music, 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 music.